This is a special episode and special edition of the Parlay in All Blue. We are joined today by Michelle Duster. She's an author, speaker, public historian, professor, and champion of racial and gender equity. She's written and edited or contributed to 16 books. Her most recent, Ida B. Wells, Voice of Truth, and Ida B., The Queen, The Extraordinary Life and Legacy of Ida B. Wells. She is also the great granddaughter of Ida B. Wells and a steward, a great steward of Ida B. Wells' legacy. We are so happy and honored to have Michelle Duster join us on this special edition of the Parlay in All Blue. Thanks. Michelle Duster, welcome to the Parlay in All Blue. How are you? I'm good, Mark. How are you doing? (laughs) I'm doing really well. I first want to thank you and your family for being wonderful stewards of Mrs. Ida B. Wells Barnett's legacy and history, particularly at this time. But I know from the your I would assume it's your grandmother's editing of her autobiography and the work that you've done, this wonderful book. Ida B. Wells, Voice of Truth. I love this book. And this is aimed for for children. This is for parents reading to children. Yeah, four to eight years old. <laughs> yeah, no, this is great. And you have at the top here, educator, feminist, and anti-lynching civil rights leader. Through reading uh, the autobiography and this really, really wonderful book, uh, Ida B. the Queen, I've added in, I've helped you out with your title. I've added in, let's see, club organizer, NAACP founder, mother, investigative journalist, suffragist, businesswoman, most famous Black woman in America, Pulitzer recipient, and so many other things. I mean, truly, truly a giant and a dynamic history and and someone that we could spend lots of time on. I want to encourage everyone to first go and get these books. And, and the Ida B. the Queen is aimed at what age? Um, I would just say teenage and up. So 13 to 113. <laughs> I was going to say that even though I've read the, the autobiography and some of her own writings, I have to tell you that I am in love with this book, Ida B. the Queen. I mean, it is really, it is really a good book. It was really helpful in uh, me preparing for uh, this interview. So with that, why don't we start with Mrs. Wells Barnett's birth in 1862 during the Civil War? And just tell us who were, who were her parents and, and how did that shape her? Well, first, I just explained that Ida B. Wells is my great grandmother on my father's side of the family. She was my grandmother's mother, and she was born in 1862 in Holly Springs, Mississippi, during the Civil War. And her parents were enslaved, and so, based on how the laws were in this country, she was born into slavery, enslaved upon birth. And so, lucky for her, the Civil War ended in 1865, and slavery was outlawed. Um, you know, shortly after. 
So she had the fortune of growing up free. And that meant a lot as far as all the different rights and opportunities that she had available to her that had not been available to her parents or any uh, previous generations. I mean, she she had the opportunity to become formally educated. So she was among the first um, generations of formerly enslaved people to have that opportunity. Um, She was the oldest of eight children um, to James and Elizabeth Wells. Her father, James, was a carpenter and her mother was a cook. And so when when it came to slavery, uh, they were considered house Negroes. (laughs) Um, Holly Springs, Mississippi is an urban area. And so their experience as enslaved people was a little different than what we normally or sometimes, you know, uh, think of when it comes to slavery, which is, you know, in the cotton fields or doing more sort of agrarian type of work. They were working inside of the house and her father was very skilled uh, carpenter and after the Civil War ended and there was this period of our history called Reconstruction from 1865 to 1877, which gave formerly enslaved people enormous numbers of opportunities to become educated, to become business owners, property owners, and become politically engaged. And her father, in particular, as a result of the 15th Amendment, in 1870, which gave formerly enslaved black men the right to vote. So Ida grew up in a politically engaged family with her father so involved in really, uh, I get the impression he was very enthusiastic and was, um, you know, part of a community of other men who were very enthusiastic of taking advantage of these new rights and, you know, enthusiastically voted and, you know, were very involved in sort of self-determination and, and uh, you know, taking advantage of all of these opportunities to be, be first-class citizens, to be participants in our democracy. Yeah, it's really telling in, in, in that how much progress Black people made and how much progress the country was making, right? If we had allowed things to happen during Civil War, during Reconstruction, just after the, uh, the Civil War. And I want to say for all of my listeners and people who will see a clip of this that I have on a Rust College hoodie <laughs> and Ida's Ida B. Wells's father was involved with Russ College. He was a trustee, or is am I correct? Right. That's our understanding that he was involved in the development and direction of the school. It was founded in 1866, so only one year after the Civil War ended. Um, and so Ida was only four years old. And so that, you know, his involvement, her, her father's involvement with the school. Plus, her mother attended school with her because we have to remember that literacy was banned for enslaved people. So you have an entire generation that was previous to my great grandmother's uh, generation that did not have the opportunity to become formally educated. And so her mother and father were among them. Um, They were not literate when it came to reading and writing. So her mother went to school with her in order to learn how to read the Bible. And from what, you know, based on what Ida herself wrote about it after her mother 
felt that she was versed enough to read and she didn't um, attend the school anymore. But you have to remember, she was the mother of eight children. So she was kind of busy, um, you know, with other, other things besides going to school. But she definitely wanted Ida and all of her siblings to become as educated as possible. Yeah. Speaking of which, and, you know, I, I will touch on this just a little bit and and, and keep moving, is, is I'm glad you mentioned that Holly Springs is an urban area. I think they have a really big misunderstanding of slavery and how broad it was. It wasn't just in the field. I mean, if you visit Charleston, there's a lot of urban slaving that happened. I mean, people, it's, it's, it's really much of our history is, is just obfuscated and buried and we don't understand how pervasive the practice was and, and what the contribution of uh, Black Americans has been to the country. But you mentioned the Ida's, which would be seven siblings. She was orphaned suddenly and left with the responsibility of raising her brothers and sisters or her sisters. Well, well there were a total of eight children that were born one of her siblings died in infancy, which was not that un- unusual, you know, during that time, especially for infant mortality. And then her her parents both died within a day of each other in 1878, when my great grandmother was only 16 years old, and one of her younger siblings died at the same time as her parents. So that is when there were a total of six children left. So she had five younger siblings. And she decided at that very young age to become the breadwinner for her family and keep her siblings together versus being sort of separated into, parceled out basically between friends of of the family, which was the original plan by the friends who had you know, gotten together and come up with this grandiose plan on, okay, this family would take these two boys and this family would take this daughter. And, and uh, when they informed Ida about that plan, she, she was like, no, you're not going to separate my family. And I mean, I think about it, you know, when I've worked on these books, I've tried to imagine what it was like for her, just try to time travel in my head (laughs) of what it must have been like. And to lose both parents within uh, within a day of each other is uh, yeah. obviously very devastating. And then to also have somebody decide, well, we're going to break up you, you and your siblings. I mean, that's like a, a triple loss, you know? So I think I just kind of imagine in her head that she was like, we already lost our parents. We, want, we don't want to lose each other as well. And then also from what I understand, she had grown up hearing stories from her mother about how she had been separated from her family. Her mother was originally born in Virginia and was one of several children, um, I think around 10 children. And unfortunately, her mother, Elizabeth, was sold at the age of seven from her family and two of her sisters as well. And so she really never saw her, the rest of her family ever again in life. And that's just traumatizing to be separated from your your entire family, your siblings, especially when you're that young. So Ida, I think, was motivated on two levels. One, because there was such a loss of both parents, but then in addition to not just the value of family that she had learned from her mother in particular to do everything you can to keep keep everybody together. Yeah. Yeah. And. If the story was just that of a 
woman who was born during the Civil War, before emancipation, grew up, became literate, attended Russ College, and lost her parents, and then took it on upon herself at age 16 to say, no, we're not going to have the family split apart. I will take, take this responsibility and raise my siblings. That would be a story in and of itself. I mean, it already begins to shape what type of person she was. I'm talking about the, the spirit and this self-determination that she had. So that would be a story in and of itself. So whenever I hear that or read that, I'm amazed at her self-determination and just her will to do that. In raising her siblings, she took on a job as a, as a teacher. Am I correct? Yes. Things were very different in 1878 than they are today um, in 2022. And so for some people, it sounds like impossible for somebody to, at that age, to get a job and take care of not only yourself, but five other siblings. Plus, what I learned later on was that she had some help from her grandmother, her father's mother. And so that that's when I put the pieces together, that made more sense than her by herself single-handedly, you know, taking care of five children and herself and, you know, with, with no support. That's not what happened. She did have support. Um, and so from, you know, reading through her autobiography and other sources, what happened was that Ida was able to get a job as a teacher by passing an exam. This is in 1878. So this country was still recovering from a civil war. And there was a frenzy of sort of rebuilding the South and quickly building schools in order to educate formerly enslaved people. You have to remember about 90% of the formerly enslaved were not literate. So there was a very dire need for teachers. And so basically they're like, whoever can teach, you know, um, can do this as long as you can pass this exam and you know this material, then yes, we, we want you. And so she made herself look older. They didn't have IDs like they do now and all of these other things that are that we look, think about. And so she was able to look a little older and she passed an exam and she was hired. And she taught in a rural school in Mississippi. From what I understand, it was around six miles away from Holly Springs. And her grandmother, who had lived in a, in, on a farm, moved into the house with the, her grandchildren and took care of Ida's siblings during the week while Ida lived with families near the school. And then she would come home on the weekends and do all of the chores and everything. So if you really think about it, she was actually taking care of six people, you know, if you count her grandmother, because she was the... Ida was the breadwinner and her grandmother helped care, take care of, of the children. Yeah. And at some point, I, I believe she begins to also teach in Memphis and is traveling back and forth via train. And, and I think at least from there, for me, there's, there's the birth of, of an activist somewhere where she's being removed from a train on one of the trips between Memphis and Mississippi, I'm thinking. Well, that's almost what happened. <laughs> yeah. um, so uh-huh. she, um, her, her grandmother eventually had a stroke. And so she was mm-hmm. not able to take care of, this, uh, of the children anymore. And Ida looked for other people to help her. And eventually it got to be just too much. And so she had an aunt 
who lived in Memphis, who was a widow to the yellow fever epidemic also. Her husband had died um, as a as a uh, results of the epidemic. And so she had three children. So then she was a single mother with three children. Ida was a single caregiver of five people. So basically what happened was that her aunt sort of encouraged her to move to Memphis and they could mutually help each other. And so at that point, Ida and two of her sisters moved to Memphis to live with her aunt, with their aunt. And then Ida's two brothers lived with a different aunt on a farm. And then her other sister, who was basically crippled at that point, ended up living with somebody else. And unfortunately, she died at a fairly young age. So Ida and her her two sisters moved to Memphis. Ida got a teaching job in Woodstock, Tennessee, which is not that far from Memphis. And so she was living in Memphis and she was commuting to Woodstock. And between Memphis and Woodstock, when she was riding the train, that's when she was accosted and removed from the train on her way to work to Woodstock. And what happened in the state of Tennessee, which um, I think this is a very undertold part of our country's history, which is post-Reconstruction, because Reconstruction was a period from 1865 to 1877 when there was um, sort of northern, if, I'm sure the southern people would think of it as sort of imposition or oversight um, of rebuilding the, the southern part of the country with more e- equality, racial equality, that was kind of overseen by the northern troops. And in 1877, they were removed. And um, and then there were states' rights that were reinstituted. As a result of the, there was a Tilden Hayes compromise that happened between two presidential candidates and kind of similar to the 2000 um, um, election where there was no clear winner and a lot of drama. And ultimately, a compromise was made. And so that the, the result of that compromise was that basically Reconstruction was dismantled. And so the individual states could, you know, sort of impose their own laws as a result of that. And the state of Tennessee immediately started creating Jim Crow laws. And one of those laws in 1881 was the separation of public transportation by race. And the whole idea wasn't supposed to be separate but equal. But it went real realistically, it was separate and unequal. And so my great-grandmother had been riding this train for a few years, undisturbed with no problem. And then all of a sudden there was this law, and you know, and it wasn't imposed, it wasn't enforced very frequently with, with any kind of regularity. So people just kind of ignored it. <laughs> so one day they decided to enforce it, and she decided to not comply. Um, so I mean, when I've done all this research, th- that's what made it make more sense to me, because if you realize that okay, sometimes there are laws that are on the books, but nobody really enforces them, then you can easily ignore it. And that's pretty much kind of what what she did. She just ignored ignored this newly instituted law that sort of came about after she had already been doing, you know, this activity. She ultimately sued the railroad in 1884 based on the fact that the cars were uh, separate and unequal because the colored car doubled as a smoking car, it was not anywhere near the same as the lady's car that she had purchased the ticket for and was sitting on. 
And she initially won the lawsuit on that basis. But then the railroad company kept appealing it and it went all the way to the Tennessee Supreme Court and it was eventually overturned and she lost not only the suit, but she lost a lot of money because she was charged court costs and fees and, you know, other financial burdens. So it was, it was really um, quite disappointing for her. Yeah. And reading that story, there's a couple of things that, that, that come to mind for me with this is that, Unlike Homer Plessy, who would do this again intentionally, which brought about the case Plessy versus Ferguson, where it's a part of a group in New Orleans who was openly in challenging the railroads and and the part of an organization. And this is before the NAACP, of course, which Ida was a part of founding. This was something that she was taking on on her own. And I, and I, I, I think it really speaks to her personal agency in terms of not accepting being second class as a woman or as a black person. I mean, she's just uh, phenomenal in that sense. But in Memphis, it sounds like in, in reading that the post reconstruction, despite all of the, the attempts to roll things back and to begin to the beginnings of now, what we now, now know as Jim Crow it seems like Memphis was for black people beginning to be a prosperous city and notably the uh, people's grocery store. Right. Well, at that time that my great grandmother, Ida B. Wells was living in Memphis. We're talking about the late 1870s, early 1880s through 1892, which is when she eventually was um, exiled from, from Memphis. So she lived there for about 12 years or so. And it was very influential in shaping who she became because she was a young woman when she first moved to Memphis. And I'm sure, you know, I, again, I tried to kind of imagine sort of put myself time travel and put myself in that position of like what it must have been like for her. She was from Holly Springs, which was an urban area, but it's a small town. And Memphis was a big city to her. It was considered Belle of the South at that point. It was a bustling city right on the Mississippi River. So there was a lot of trade going on along the the river. People were moving from some uh, rural areas in the South and sort of settling in, in Memphis. And there was a very small but vibrant middle class of Black people, Black professionals who were, you know, like her, the teachers, doctors, lawyers, ministers. So there were, she was part of a community. She was part of a, a group of people who were educated and they were making a little bit more money than some other professions and, you know, everything that goes along with that as far as just sort of, sort of their lifestyle, the clothes they wore, the kind of things that they did culturally. She became part of what were called lyceums, which were sort of literary clubs that would meet mostly at churches and, you know, have readings and, you know, like poetry readings and literary readings and skits and performances and plays. And, you know, so she was part of this, this world of people who were exchanging ideas, who were exchanging information. She was taking what we call elocution classes, which are basically public speaking classes. At that time, she became involved in writing the newsletters for some of these literary clubs. And so this was all sort of um, 
like outside of her teaching job. Like she was doing her teaching job, you know, job, job, or, you know, whatever people call it today, right? Um, but she had all of these sort of interests outside of her job. And she, based on her journal that she kept, which has been published and is available to people. I mean, but we read through it and she was writing it when she was in her early 20s. She was extremely busy, you know, going to lectures and going to, you know, panels and going to just different kinds of sort of intellectual kind of events where a lot of ideas were being exchanged. I mean, she would go to like two or three a day sometimes. And she, you know, there were speakers that would be at the different churches and she would go from one church to another to listen to speakers. Um, So she was obviously seeking knowledge. She enjoyed being in this sort of intellectual space. And so to me, it makes sense, you know, that she didn't come out of nowhere. She came out of this, this community of thought leaders, if you want to call it that, or, or, or um, community of people who were, who were leaders. Yeah, definitely an upwardly mobile community of, of Black people. And um, is it at this time that she starts her newspaper or, or is it before then or is this during this time in, in Memphis, right, with the, um, the free speech? Right. Well, she started off writing, you know, sort of for fun, um, writing for church newsletters um, in these literary organizations. And she became very popular. She developed a following with her writing for these newsletters. And that caught the attention of a newspaper owner who asked her to write some articles for his newspaper. And, and so that gave her a bigger audience. And then some of her articles were reprinted in other newspapers outside of the Memphis area. And so that's how she developed a following more on the national level. And so, you know, it sort of grew organically. And then ultimately she was asked to be editor of the what was called the Memphis Free Speech and Headline at the time by two men who were co-owners. And she basically struck a deal with them <laughs> um, to not only be the editor, but to be co-owner of the newspaper. And so that newspaper is where she really had a sort of big, even bigger audience um, when it came to writing about social injustice and where she began writing about lynching um, and the effects of it. She was writing for that newspaper when her friends were lynched um, and she used the the outlet of that newspaper that she was the editor and co-owner of to write these articles. So she had control. And I really think that's very important for people to recognize that ownership of the newspaper was huge because she was a decision maker. She could decide what was going to be printed and not. She didn't have to, you know, sort of run it past um, somebody else through gatekeepers or people who wanted to want to control the narrative. She was the the person who could make those decisions. And so in my mind, you know, that is, um, that's a very, very huge detail to recognize that ownership of the media outlet was a, a, a hugely empowering way that, that gave her the, the, the platform to, you know, do what she did. Amen. You touched on there that there was a lynching of her friends and they owned the, the People's Grocery Company. 
And she wrote about that. She wrote about that boldly, I would say. Say a little bit more about that incident at People's Grocery and her writing about the incident. Well, one thing I'd like to, to kind of mention before I get into her friend's um, demise was that she became co-owner of the newspaper in 1889, and she was still teaching at that time. And she decided to write an article about the racism and the, and the inequality between um, the black difference between the black schools and the white schools. Cause we have to remember now Jim Crow had been um, instituted uh, in every aspect of life in Tennessee and across the South. It's very interesting. I'm such a geek. I mean, I've looked at all of the laws that were passed in, 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 in Tennessee starting in really 1878. And it was like almost every single year, there was a different law that was passed to the point where ultimately there was uh, racial segregation from cradle to grave, like cradle meaning separate, you know, hospitals, separate facilities for people to even have, you know, a child, and then all the way through separate cemeteries. So it was just, you know, in every little, every single aspect of life, there was segregation. And ultimately what that means is separate and unequal because of course, you know, the black, the black facilities were not, you know, funded the same way. They were not supported the same way. So they were absolutely separate and unequal. And so it was the same with teaching. The schools where she was teaching did not have the same funding. They did not have the same facilities. They did not have the same kind of equipment. Um, The teachers were not paid the same. And so she really started to have a major problem with that. And she wrote about it in the newspaper, criticizing the Memphis um, school system. And uh, as a result, she lost her job. And so she decided to go full force to build the newspaper. She wrote this article in 1891. So it was a couple of years after she co-owned the newspaper. So before that, she was juggling, teaching and running the newspaper. But then in 1891, she lost her job. So I guess she was like, okay, I'm just going to go full force, you know, 100%, you know, into getting, into making the newspaper grow. So she was in Natchez, Mississippi in March of 1892, drumming up subscriptions for the newspaper. She had a very business mind and she knew that, you know, in order to get a newspaper running, you have to have subscriptions. So she was sort of happily, you know, traveling around in Mississippi and Tennessee to get subscriptions for the newspaper. And her friends, three friends of hers, the main friend um, that she was closest to was Thomas Moss, but then there was um, Calvin McDowell and William Stewart. The three of them co-owned the People's Grocery, and Thomas Moss was also a letter carrier, and so he was kind of doing the the grocery as a side gig also because he had a full-time job as a letter carrier, which was considered a prestigious job in that time because it was working for the federal government. For Black people to have a job working in the federal government that this closely after slavery had ended, we're talking less than 30 years, that was a really like very impressive job to have. So he was a leader in the community. He was very well loved. He, you know, had a little family. He he was married. He had one child and one child on the way. He owned a little house, and obviously was very enterprising. So while um, Ida was in Natchez selling these subscriptions. Thomas Moss, William Stewart, and Calvin McDowell were lynched. What happened was that they their store, the People's Grocery, 
was located in the Black neighborhood, um, which was called The Curve, in an area called The Curve of Memphis. But there had been another guy named William Barrett who owned a grocery store in that area, white a white man who owned that store and he was sort of really happy taking business from um black patrons and so you know here you have these three black men that are like we're going to take control of our own neighborhood we're going to take care of our own people and so the white guy who owned the grocery store felt it was a business threat economic threat how dare these men take my business away so he trumped up this whole, you know, scenario where ultimately what happened was that the, the black men needed to defend themselves because they were being yeah, attacked. Yeah. And then, so then they were to, you turn everything around. And so then they're the aggressors. They're the ones that are the criminals. And so they were ultimately lynched because of mob, you know, frenzy uh, came up and all of this happened while Ida was out of town. <laughs> So she got back into Memphis and heard about what happened with her friends and could not believe that this violence had happened. And she knew that they were not guilty of any kind of a crime at all. The narrative at that time that was being used to justify lynching was that Black men were violating white women. And she knew absolutely that none of those three men were, were guilty of that. So then she started writing about, in the Memphis Free Speech, she started encouraging people in the Black community to boycott the Memphis streetcars, to boycott white-owned businesses, and for those who could afford to just leave Memphis um, and go to relocate to a place in the country where they could get more justice. At that time, Oklahoma was not a state. It was still a territory. And so she and many people felt that that was a good place to move because there was a more sense of, like, you can't be independent in Oklahoma. So people left. They, I mean, there was a mass exodus. Entire church congregations got together and just moved. <laughs> um, yeah. And so literally thousands of people moved from Memphis. And those who couldn't move participated in the boycotts. And so because of the writing that she was doing was obviously considered very disruptive. And so the white community in Memphis was like, we need to silence her because she's causing us economic damage, which was her point. And ultimately, uh, so she was threatened to be silent and she decided to ignore those threats. And she, she was even encouraged by them because she was like, I must be doing something right. Um, Right. If people are mad that I'm writing this and they are being economically hurt by people boycotting and leaving. And then she ultimately wrote an article that suggested that some liaisons between black men and white women were consensual, consensual. And that was an extremely volatile thing to say out loud for a lot of white men in particular to even imagine that it was possible for their woman to be attracted to a black man because they wanted to believe in their head that it was always sort of forced. Uh, And then, uh, you know, when you read through my great grandmother's writing, she's, she made it very clear that this idea that white men can violate black women with impunity and there was no protection for black women, (laughs) But white women are so fragile and delicate and, you know, whatever other things you want to think. And so they need to be protected, but there's no protection for black, for black women. 
So this is the environment that she was living in, and she happened to be out of town when her article was published. And lucky for her, because her actually her, uh, one of her partners in the newspaper was assaulted um, and threatened. And then she got word that that's what happened and that her printing press was destroyed and her life was threatened if she ever returned. And so, you know, at that point, I guess she was like, I guess I maybe I shouldn't go back to this place. Yeah, yeah. She's really run out of town, actually. I mean, and 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 with life threatening. I mean, we 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 are fortunate that she wasn't there then now because we we benefit from her work to this day. But it was a very dangerous time, and she's extremely courageous. And I, I would just want to add, even with the the story that you told uh, about her writing about school inadequacy, school segregation, and in, in that time, is that. Before that, she was writing in a, a pen name, Iola, and but she wrote that article about the school inadequacies under her own name. I mean, she's like this is she's she's a really bold person, and I know also you talked about Oklahoma. One of the things that strikes me in this for another podcast another day is that in her encouraging people from Memphis, prosperous people business owners, like you said, whole churches, established community, artisans are leaving and, and and labor is leaving. We get about, I guess, 30 years later from there, Black Wall Street. And so when I hear, when I, when I read that and her encouraging people to leave Memphis and going to Oklahoma, it's one of the things that the country does over and over and over is that by mistreating its black talent, black people, is that you you end up hurting yourself. Memphis was the one that lost in that case. You know what I mean? It, it's just something that always sticks out to me. Now, she, she leaves Memphis. She's run out, but she begins to write more about lynching, and she's not just writing, but speaking. And there's a book that you edited. It's Ida from abroad, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he spends time overseas talking about what's happening in America. Can you talk a little bit about that time period? And I want to, to note for the audience, she is quite sharp too. She's stylish. She's, she is, she's very stylish here. The hat. Did you choose this couple? Yeah, I was very purposeful. I wrote, uh, well, I edited Ida from, um, in her own words first, which is a compilation of the articles that she wrote in the pamphlet called The Reason Why the Colored American is Not in the World's Columbian Exposition in, 1880, in 1893. And then she went to England in 1894 and wrote a series of articles for the Daily Interocean newspaper. And so I compiled those newspapers and put them into the book Ida from Abroad the column that she wrote was called Ida B. Wells Abroad. And so I tried to use a little bit of, you know, make it similar to the name of her column. So her column was Ida B. Wells Abroad, and then the name of my book is Ida From Abroad. But so she she had left Memphis. She The article was published after she was gone. She was in Philadelphia attending, attending a church convention, and then she decided that she had never seen, a, you know, 
um, several parts of this country. She had never been into the Northeast, so she um, went on to New York City. The thing is that while she was writing for this different newspaper, she had developed a really uh, a reputation as somebody who was sort of a straight shooter, you know, social critic, writing about in- injustice and sort of using the um, medium of the newspaper to expose the realities of what life was really for, for African-Americans. Um, and so she had developed relationships with people in other cities. I mean, I think it's also important, and it, it was eye-opening to me even to recognize that it's not like like she just, you know, just randomly went places and randomly met people. I mean, she had gone to a couple of conventions for journalists before this. And so she had met T. Thomas Fortune and Frederick Douglass at one of the journalism conferences that was in Washington, D.C. a few years before. And so after Philadelphia, she went up to New York City and met T. Thomas Fortune there. And he's the one who told her, like, you can't go back to Memphis because this is what's happening. And so so he offered her the opportunity to write for his newspaper, the, the New York Age, and here we go with her being business savvy. From what I understand, he asked her for her subscription list for the Memphis Free Speech. And she was like, mm, in exchange for the subscription list, how about I you know, become part owner uh, of the New York Age? So she bought into, she became a quarter part owner of the New York Age. So to me, these are the, the sort of small details. Or they're sort of major details, but they're... There, there are things that a lot of people don't necessarily know about her. And kind of when I think think through, not only was she a really good writer, which was very effective, but she was also very business savvy, which gave her the power to use the newspaper in the way that she did because she owned it. So she wrote these articles, a series of articles in the New York Age about what was going on regarding lynching in the South. She knew, obviously, that her life was in danger um, to go and physically investigate everything on their own. And so she, she hired private detectives, sometimes white men, to, to go down to the South and collect uh, data for her and collect information. And so she, she, she knew how to protect herself also. And so she wrote this series of articles to help people in the North understand what was really going on in the South, because there was a whole lot of miseducation, blaming the victim. You know, somebody, people in the North heard about lynching, but there was always presented as, you know, I kind of look at it today the way some people have framed kind of super predator kind of way of like, or or, uh, wilding, or, you know, this kind of language that that in some ways sort of justifies, like you have to, you know, get control over, you know, we're going to be tough on crime um, kind of thing and protect, you know, these innocent white women from all of these beasts that are running around wild and um, that kind of thing. So it was the same kind of thing during her time. And so people during her time felt that it was justified. Like you had to, you know, be quote hard on crime or whatever in order to create safety. And so what she was doing was countering that narrative and telling the truth about what was happening, which was many innocent people were being killed under these false pretenses. And so this was a matter of domestic terrorism versus legitimate punishment for uh, crimes. And her goal with, with these articles was to help 
encourage the people in the northern part of the country to put pressure on the southern part of the country to stop this lawlessness. She knew that more than likely it would be difficult to encourage people from a moral standpoint. So she was encouraging it from an economic standpoint to inflict economic pain (laughs) Um, and to shame. So she compiled, she ultimately compiled these articles into her first pamphlet, Southern Horrors, Lentois on All Its Phases. And she started doing public speaking in the New York area and being encouraged by Black club women to speak, speak in public about what was happening in the South. And ultimately, that's how she ended up going to England, because a woman who was in the audience of one of her speeches was from England. And so she also was a writer and she wrote an article about what Ida had said at one of those speeches. It was, that article was read by a woman in Scotland who was appalled at what she was reading. And so ultimately the decision was made, well, we need to bring Ida to England. Well, really it was more like, um, the United Kingdom, you know, which which incorporates more than one country because the other lady was in Scotland. And so that's how she was invited to go overseas to talk with the British. And this it was for an organization called the Society for the Brotherhood of Man in 1893. And then she became, there was a bunch of drama that happened and, and, and her um, speaking to her was cut short. But it kind of worked out because she was invited by Frederick Douglass to go to Chicago to work on this pamphlet that would be produced at the World's Fair to educate people from all over the world who were coming to Chicago to celebrate the advancements and the the progress that the United States had made in 30 years after the Civil War. And so, you know, to me, like when I've when I've kind of looked at her timeline of her life, it makes me realize that there's some things you can't predict (laughs) in your life. I mean, I don't think she was in Holly Springs, Mississippi in the late 1870s, you know, doing vision boards, thinking I'm going to go to England um, in the 1890s. It was just kind of one thing led to another. And that's, you know, she ended up having that opportunity. Yeah, well, one thing is, is that you, you can't predict everything, but clearly, and, and it's something that I get in, in from studying her life is very intentional, though, and very strategic in terms of, like you said, owning and being in, in spaces where she could be in, influential. I do want to, to pause on this book, uh, pamphlet, The Reason Why the Colored American is Not in the World's Columbian Exposition, it's Ida B. Wells, Frederick Douglass, Irvine Garland Penn, and Ferdinand L. Barnett. Who is Ferdinand L. Barnett? Well, Ferdinand Barnett was an attorney in Chicago, and he also was a newspaper owner. He owned the uh, conservator newspaper, which was the first black news black owned newspaper in Chicago, and. Uh, you know, so the the four of those people worked on the pamphlet together in 1893, which from what I understand was the first time that Ferdinand and Ida B. Wells met in person. I, I do get the impression that he knew who she was. I mean, she was the most famous woman, Black woman in, in that time period. So it was kind of impossible, I think, for him to not know who she was. 
But as far as I know, they had never met in person until 1893. And so he was a widower um, who had two children from his first marriage, and he was 10 years older than Ida. But while they were working together on this pamphlet, and um, they also, you know, were both social justice activists and and, um, just had a lot in common. And I guess during that time, of working on this pamphlet, they struck up a romance and um, ultimately got married two years later in 1895. And they had four children together and their youngest child is my grandmother. How about that? How about that? So, so they could all, they would, they were definitely what you would, what we would term now as a, as a power couple. I mean, they, they're in terms of social justice and just their professionalism and like you talked about ownership and and other things so we are we are happy that they they united i do have a question and you mentioned it a little bit here um women's clubs what were women's clubs well we have to remember that for 300 years or so of our country's history women did not have the right to vote And so women had to, women didn't have a a lot of different rights that we have today. Um, They didn't have the right to own property. They didn't have the right to vote. I mean, just on and on. The laundry list is very long. Even in my own lifetime, uh, women have gained a lot of rights that my mother didn't have. Um, So during that time, um, pretty much from... 1619 until until um, 1920, you know, women just were absolute second class citizens when it came to being included in our political system and, and a lot of other systems. And so their way of having some semblance of power was to organize within these clubs. So there were women's clubs that were formed around the country still in keeping with the way that our country has traditionally and to some extent still today operate. They pretty much were segregated. So there were women's clubs that were predominantly white that kind of organized around their concerns that were slightly different than just the issues that concerned black women. And so my great-grandmother was involved in in these women's clubs, and she was one of the co-founders of the National Association of Colored Women's Clubs in 1896. And that was a result of, like I said, there were numerous clubs around the country, individual clubs, but then they made a decision to collaborate and, and form one national organization in order to centralize and, you know, ultimately have more power, you know, collectively than they could individually as individual clubs. But a lot of the issues that they worked on were issues that affected them when it came to quality of life. And unfortunately, many of their issues are still issues today when it comes to childcare and healthy foods and education and, you know, just the, the laundry list of, of things that um, women tend to, that, that tend to fall a little bit more on women's shoulders than they do on men's shoulders or, or sort of affect families. And so this was their way of having some sense of power. And what would happen before women gained the right to vote was that a lot of times the women's clubs would collaborate and sort of build coalitions among themselves and put pressure on men <laughs> um, to vote the way that they wanted the votes to go. So they would sort of exert their power 
I mean, especially when you think about white women, because, you know, in a lot of these situations, black men have been disenfranchised. So white women were using their club power to influence politics from the sidelines, if you want to call it that. And now through this, um, through these clubs, and this is where the intersection of gender and race and sexism and racism and a lot of things clash, but she... She was very, again, much a, a leader and organizer, what have you, and, and also strategic and forming partnerships. She was also part of the suffragist movement. Right. Absolutely. Um, my great-grandmother was involved in the suffrage movement, which some people haven't, you know, they're not familiar with the, the, the name suffragist because it's not used as much today. But suffrage is the right to vote. So you have to remember that my great-grandmother lived during a time when she saw the enfranchisement that her, of, of the vote for Black men that her father had been able to take advantage of. She saw that. She was a living witness to that being stripped away, you know, in post-Reconstruction. And so she was very aware and she had lived through, you know, sort of the idea of rights being, quote, given or or taken advantage of, and then all of a sudden this sort of backlash and, and stripping away of these rights. And so just from her own experience, she knew how important it was to have the right to vote and why there was such an effort to make it so that people could not have the right to vote because she saw it being taken away from Black men. So see, Black women were focused, when it came to looking um, fighting for the right to vote, they were more focused on gaining the right to vote in order to impact racial inequality and justice. And white women were more fighting to have the same level of influence and power as their husbands and fathers, which was basically to maintain leadership uh, and control over everything in this country. So in some ways, depending on who the woman was, it was kind of to maintain white supremacy, right? And so there was some overlap when it came to, okay, we're all women and we need to have some of the same rights that men do. But considering the fact that Black men did not have the same rights as white men, then Black women's issues were a little different than white women's issues. Because in, you know, so you do have that, intersection of racism and sexism because black women were working to help black enfranchise black men. Yeah. Now, and listen, I would encourage again, everyone to, I'm going to go back to, again, this is a book for teen teens. I to be the queen, but I will say, you know, you can start there or with her, with Ida B. Wells's autobiography and you, you'll get so much out of how, not only did she operate in those spaces and, and being strategic, but she didn't lose her voice or her purpose in any of those situations, whether it would be with Susan B. Anthony or um, Jane Adams, or even in founding the NAACP with W.E.B. Du Bois, or, or even in other issues with Booker T. Washington. She is somebody who maintained her integrity in, in multiple circles. Just in the interest of time, because there's so much in Chicago that she did in terms of starting first black kindergarten, the Negro Fellowship League, which is essentially helping black men of, of all classes to to adjust to 
of people coming from the South or gaining employment. I mean, she's just a just a powerhouse. She did so much. I do want to talk to one sort of area and 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 because I think it speaks to Ida's power and, and where she's really effective. And I want to frame it around World War One and what we now know as Red Crummer. And I have to tell you, a lot of this history is very new to me. Like the last five years, some of these things have come up a lot, but it's something that is is very important and really informs today. Talk about the environment for Black people after World War One and where Ida sort of fit into things during that time period. Right. Well, um, you know, during World War One, you know, we were supposedly, you know, fighting for freedom, democracy, and equality for people in other countries. And there were black men who were part of the army in order to fight, go overseas and fight. Black men were not included in any other arms of the military except except for the army. And there were, during that time, the army was segregated, (laughs) Um, even though you're supposed to be fighting for the United States, but within the United States, uh, the uh, black soldiers were treated as second-class soldiers. Um, There was an incident that took place in 1917 in Houston where some black soldiers were positioned at Camp Logan, which is right outside of Houston, and they were very much discriminated against and humiliated and insulted, and they you know, they had a problem with that, understandably, because they were wearing their army uniforms, they were in training, they were getting ready to go overseas. And ultimately, there was an incident that took place where, again, uh, a black man was defending himself, and then he was considered the aggressor. And there were rumors that the camp was going to be attacked by by white soldiers. And so then the black men decided to not be sitting ducks and they decided to go defend themselves. And a huge thing happened. It was, just, it was kind of a battle um, that happened in Houston. Um, several people ended up dying. And then the the United States Army decided, well, we need to have a, a hearing for the soldiers, hundreds of soldiers, Ultimately, 13 of them were sentenced to die. They were executed without really a formal, um, really a fair trial. And then the rest were, you know, imprisoned. So my great-grandmother heard about this situation. I mean, this was in Houston. She read about it in the newspaper. But she had a real problem with how the country of the United States could execute its own soldiers when they were supposed to be going to war to fight for this country. So she and Ferdinand decided that they wanted to organize like a protest of one. Also, that's what it ultimately ended up being. They wanted to have a memorial service to um, just sort of honor these soldiers who had died, were executed, and she considered them to be martyrs. And she had a problem finding any church um, in Chicago that would be willing to host the memorial. And she had printed up buttons that said murdered Negro soldiers to pass around. But this is, I mean, this was during a war. 
there were a lot of laws put in place when it came to patriotism and that kind of thing. And there was an espionage act that was implemented and all of these things. So there was a lot of fear within this country of sort of criticizing the government would be considered an unpatriotic treason. And so she was visited by what she said, what she called them secret service agents. But I mean, now the files are in the FBI files. So I, I think in today's world, they would be considered a federal bureau of investigation officers. And they basically um, strongly encouraged her to stop selling these buttons that said murdered Negro soldiers. And she was defiant about not stopping. <laughs> um, and but, and but you have to remember, she was in her early 50s at this point. So she had already been fighting for 30 years. And mm-hmm. she was not trying to be intimidated about selling buttons. Also, what I've concluded in my own head is that her stepson, Ferdinand's oldest son from his first marriage, was also a soldier in World War I. And so to me, you know, I just kind of think that it must have been felt personal to her to know that her stepson was going off to fight for this country wearing a United States uniform. But then, you know, you can't even trust your own government to protect you. So, you know, all of these things were going on where you having, you know, this idea that black people are going to fight for this country, but then you can't, you're not, you're treated like second class citizens in your own country, even when you're in training. After this, you know, visit by the FBI, she decided to volunteer to help some of the soldiers that were located not so, not so far um, from Chicago. And again, this is segregated you know, systems. And so the, the black men, and I mean, you have to think these are young men, you know, probably 18 to 26 years old. Um, They were her children's age. And so, you know, she's looking at these young men who are being mistreated by their own government, separate, but unequal (laughs) um, camps or whatever. So this is the backdrop of of World War One, even before the people, the soldiers went overseas. Now the, the soldiers did go overseas. They were exposed to other cultures and they had different experiences when they were overseas, they had more freedom and they were also trained to fight. They knew how to use weapons <laughs> and all of these things that happens when you are in a war. So for them to come back home, back to the United States in, in 1918 after the war you know, technically ended and for them to be expected to go back to abdicating everything in the uh, two white people, the soldiers were not having that. And then some white people felt that the, you know, the black soldiers were uppity, that they were, they didn't know quote their place. They weren't um, intimidated and in sort of being willing to, you know, sort of lower their head or walk, you know, step on the outside, step off the sidewalk in deference to a white person and, and all of these different sort of norms that had been, they were not having that. And so this is the backdrop to the Red Summer. There's a lot more to it when it came to economics because while while people were overseas fighting for this country, there was a um, labor shortage in some areas. And so some uh, were factories and other organizations decided to hire women and to hire Black people because they needed workers during a war. And then after the war was over, then they're kind of like, okay, go back. We don't need you anymore. And so there were 
tension when it came to some of these returning the white men who were returning from war, thinking that these people took their jobs and all of that kind of stuff. So there was just a lot of tension and it kind of exploded in 1919. Yeah. And, you know, so the, the one thing that I get during this period, the Nadir sort of after reconstruction when with the, 4,000 lynchings that occurred between 1870 and the 1950 is if we go back to People's Grocery and Thomas Moss of being upstanding and running a competently running a good business, right? And then you have the soldiers who are coming back with agency and wanting a job and being dignified. The number of Black men who were lynched in uniform in the United States is astonishing. And so I do want to ask you, Michelle, about one thing, and then I want to get to some of your work really quickly. And and one last Ida story that I think really is important, and also a story about just Black agency. In Elaine, Arkansas, a group of sharecroppers get together and say, we're tired of being cheated. And they take control of their 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 cotton prices and they form a union and get a lawyer, what have you. Ultimately, the people of Elaine, the white people in Elaine don't like that. It was a mass lynching or what have you. You can read about that. But I do want, Michelle, if you can tell us about Ida's role in exposing what was going on down there. Well, I mean, we have to remember that the leaders who initiated the idea of forming a union in Elaine, Arkansas, were World War I veterans. And that, I think, is significant because it shows, you know, the extent of how these men who had fought for this country put their lives on the line with the idea of fighting for freedom and democracy in another country. And then they come back to their own country and are discriminated against. And so that was just intolerable to a lot of these guys. And so, yes, they were in the process of forming a union. Um, and there was, there was a meeting that was taking place at a church. There was, you know, historically, a lot of organizing that took, places in, took place in churches. This is very common in our, in our um, culture. And so it was one evening, I don't remember the date, there was a meeting that was taking place in a church in, at night to sort of figure out how they were going to organize this union And some white people came to the church and armed and, you know, with the intent of intimidating the people in the church. And then shots were fired and black people defended themselves. So then the next day, there was like, okay, all out assault on the entire black community. Now, this was an agrarian kind of community where they were sharecroppers, uh, but the white people who lived in that area just went wild and killed, you know, several hundred people and destroyed an enormous amount of property across Elaine, Arkansas. And then ultimately, I I think it was nine men, black men who were part of this effort to form a union were arrested and put on death row, you know, as, as retribution for a white person who was injured. They weren't even killed. I mean, so... They were put on death row, and my great-grandmother visited the jail to hear their story and um, wrote a pamphlet about it called The Elaine 
uh, Arkansas race riot, <laughs> uh, very literal name of a pamphlet. And, um, and so she chronicled their side of the story, which was, she wrote about it in the, or in the pamphlet about how she went to the jail. She disguised herself and told the jail person that she was their aunt. She went with a group of women and they, they, they said she was their long distance aunt or whatever. So they, because she was, she was very famous. Um, I yeah. People knew who she was. And so she had to kind of pretend, you know, disguise herself a little bit. So she, she wrote about how she, listen to the men tell their story and then she went back that evening and wrote out as much as she possibly could before she would forget what they said it's like not like she could take notes in the jail because then they would have known who she was but Mm -hmm. she chronicled everything that they said she interviewed other people in elaine arkansas got their stories of their sense of loss of the amount of property that was damaged or, or lost and the number of people who were, I mean, it was just, it was a very big disaster catastrophe that happened in, in Elaine, Arkansas. And ultimately with the help of the NAACP, it wasn't Ida alone. There were other people that were advocating for the release of these men, but she was, you know, involved in at least getting the story out. What she did with these articles, um, with these pamphlets, the last few pamphlets that she wrote in her life are not as well known as some of her earlier work. And I think part of the reason is because they weren't necessarily really distributed to the general public. Um, Mm -hmm. She created the article, I mean, the pamphlets, printed them, and she sent them to lawmakers. And so it was like very strategic, you know, mailings in order to advocate for justice. Yeah, listen... That whole period in 1919, and Ida B. Wells was involved in investigating and writing and bringing light to East St. Louis, Elaine, Cairo, Illinois, and all over. And I am a Chicagoan, and in Chicago in 1919, in Red Summer, there's also a riot, Black while swimming, in the city of Chicago prepared, did an investigation and and wrote up by all accounts a fairly good summary of next steps in order. I think it's called the Negro in Chicago, or or I I don't have the title of it right now, but it had several recommendations that both your great-grandmother said, you know, the city of Chicago hadn't uh, taken up any of them at this point, but then you, Michelle Duster, in an essay in in the book 400 Souls, said the same thing. And you're a Chicagoan. So I'd like to ask you just about our city. What is, what's taking us so long to, to implement some of those things? And, and, and to add even more, a finer point to it, to the question, one of the things they talked about was segregated housing. And my folks are a part of the great migration coming to Chicago in the 50s from Alabama. And Chicago's answer to the segregated, to the housing issue was to create hyper-segregation and to increase poverty. And I have to tell you that I was raised in a family that it's important to know things, especially know things about Black history and Black people. I went to school not far from, I went to De La Salle High School, not far from the Ida B. Wells homes. And my mother taught in the Robert Taylor 
housing projects right there at Beethoven Elementary. And I have to tell you that I did not know who Robert Taylor was. And even though I knew, and I have it in air quotes, Ida B., who Ida B. Wells was or is, I could not separate the building from the person and their accomplishment. Now, some in, in, in there somewhere, there's a, a question or just I would want to get your reaction to, you know, what are we doing here? <laughs> um, I mean, Chicago is part of the United States and yeah. the United States of America is still trying to figure out how to, you know, have absolute equality when it comes to pretty much every aspect of life. So, you know, Chicago happens to be physically maybe a more segregated than some other places when it comes to the way where people live. But it's not like other places around the country are equally integrated in every aspect of our world. I mean, the NFL is a perfect example of, you know, that type of dynamic. So, yes, you know, the, the 70% of the players are African-American, the players. But what about the rest of the organization? And so, you know, it's, it's just insidious throughout our country where there is not racial equality in all levels of what makes our society work. So we are running way over here. And so I want to, to thank you for that. But I do want to, to, to as we close out, just to, clearly you're doing writing. And I want to encourage everyone to go out and get the book for your children, uh, younger children, four to eight, Ida B. Wells, Voice of Truth. It's a great book and it's wonderfully illustrated, too. And Ida B., the queen, you've also done a suffragist mural and you're a public historian and you've been involved with that. Just briefly tell us a little bit about that, if you can. Right. Well, I've been involved in um, several projects and initiatives that public history is basically history, <laughs> telling historical information in public spaces. To me, it's everything that's outside of the classroom, the formal classroom. Um, and so I was involved with having Congress Park Gray change to be Wells Drive. I was worked on a committee for 13 years to have the Ida B. Wells National Monument created in Bronzeville. By the way, I've been there. I love it. Thank you. <laughs> um, it's on the land, uh, almost center of the land where the Ida B. Wells homes once stood for over 60 years. And so it was very important for a monument to be created in that space where the community that was named after her was located, but it was also the community where she lived. And so there was no other part of the city that we even considered having uh, a tribute to her. It was created by Richard Hunt, a world-renowned um, sculptor who also happens to be African-American and a Chicago native. In many ways, that was just like a, such an honor for us to have somebody of his stature and with that connection to the community to create this work. And there was a historical marker at 37th and King Drive to remember the homes, that there were homes that were there because our country loves to erase history. And so I just wanted to have, you know, something to remember that, that the, the substantial housing community was, was there. It will easily be forgotten once that land is redeveloped into whatever it will be in the future. And so 
that was my small way of just making sure that anybody who sees that historical marker will actually know that there was something else before uh, what will be there next. And um, in an honorary street name, I'd be Wells Way, which is at that same place on 37th and King Drive. And then more recently, a suffrage mural at Harrison and Wabash has uh, 10 women, Chicago area suffragists. And so Ida B. Wells is one of them. And I initiated that project and a, a, commission, a committee was formed um, sort of organically with people I knew that were sort of interested in that type of work. And uh, I solicited support from around the country. So it was funded by not just people in Chicago, but so that to me makes it a national project. And, and it was it's important because it's the first tribute to suffragists in the city of Chicago in the, in the outdoor space. It's very large. It's seven stories high. And so it's one of the largest, if not the largest in the country, tribute to any suffragists, not just in Chicago. And so from my point of view, what I'm doing is not only telling my great-grandmother's story, but also creating representation of Black women in public spaces. I just happened to be related to Ida B. Wells, who was a historical figure. But to me, it's just important for Black women's stories and for our images and for our names to be incorporated into our everyday lives in, in public spaces. And the more that I have done research on what the realities are when it comes to this representation, the more determined I am to, you know, do more because we as, uh, as black women, we have less than 3% representation in public spaces mm. in pretty much everything. And in my opinion, that's kind of criminal to have that level of erasure and omission. And so there's a lot of work to be done for, for us to be, to be given the credit and the attention and the accolades that we deserve as citizens of the United States of America. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I'm so happy in Memphis, one of Ida's uh, places that Nathan Beth Forrest is gone and that we could put Ida B. Wells there, there too. Michelle Dust, as we wrap up, what does it mean to live well? I would just say simply to live your own truth. <laughs> Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you for that. And we, because we we have heavy topics here at the Parlay in All Blue, we want end on something like when you were in college, you were a radio show host playing black music. Who were the artists that you enjoyed playing during that time? You know, during during my, I'm I'm kind of dating myself here, <laughs> um, but you know, some of the people who were really famous or you know um, popular during my time, you know, were Earth, Wind, and Fire, the Isley Brothers, Barry White, people yeah. Bryson, Jeffrey Osborne, you know, sort of the crooner, the croners, and and then yeah. of course house music was super popular. Me being from Chicago, and this was bef- way before, you know, any kind of internet or streaming or iPods or anything like that. And so a lot of people in New Hampshire, I went to school in New Hampshire. Yes. And a uh, lot of people in that area had never heard house music before. So I was bringing part of home with me and introducing it to, to my friends who were from New York and, you know, some of the other East coast states like Washington, DC and Philadelphia and that kind of thing. And, and Boston and, you know, and so 
it was fun. You know, it was fun. And I was, I would play some blues music and some jazz. And my show was uh, multi-genre because I just like a lot of different kinds of music. Um, it was Al Jarreau and Shaka Khan. And, um, you know, so just take yourself back about four decades. <laughs> There we go. Um, Those were the people that I was that I was playing. (laughs) Well, listen, what I can pick up just uh, and just knowing you through your public work, much like your great grandmother, it appears that you are you in all settings. And so we appreciate that. And uh, I want to thank you and really encourage you again and your family for really being good stewards of an important legacy for for the world, really. I mean, we, 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 someone like Ida B. Wells' story needs to be known and understood. And uh, much like you've done with the books and with the monument there in Chicago, wherever we can have her name and the name of others, right, in the proper place and with the proper history and the proper context is so important. So we appreciate you and we appreciate having you on the parlay in all blue. (laughs) Thanks for having me, Mark. All right. Thank you. All right. You take care. Okay. You too. Bye. We appreciate you here at the parlay in all blue. Please tell someone about us, share the podcast, make sure you leave a comment You can find the Parlay in All Blue at Spotify, Apple, Google, Amazon, or Stitcher. Wherever you receive your podcast, you can find us there. Make sure that you add us as a favorite, follow us, or subscribe. Whatever it is you need to do to make sure that you're plugged in. We want to say a big thanks to DJ Marky G for allowing us to use his music exclusively on our podcast. We appreciate it, bro. Much love. Thank you again. I'm out.